I want to invite you to turn into the Old Testament to 2 Kings and then 2 Chronicles. And we're going to look at, at this message on rising from the ruins or restoration from the ruins. About 1991, and we had a, an outside building that was shared. And we had a lot of our things, a lot of our valuables in that thing, in that little outbuilding that caught on fire. And that was a very eventful, obviously a very eventful thing. And we're very thankful that, you know, that the only thing that was lost was the stuff. But um, there, there was a loss. And I remember that we started pulling the stuff out of the, out of the, the outbuilding to go through it. And I just remember this sickening feeling in my in the pit of my stomach about of just going through stuff. I don't know if you've ever had to go through the ruins of things, but you know, tied with the stuff was the emotion with the stuff that was things like you know we had collected things. And I I'll, I'll tell you, to this day, I grieve over two guitars that I lost. Matter of fact, I was so reluctant to give up the, the, the guitars, even though they were ver, burnt very badly, and uh, they were ruined. I, I, I saved the tuners off of a, a couple of them for a long period of time until I eventually decided that I just needed to throw those away. But I realized how attached that I was to these things, to these things. Things can become very ruined. I'm thinking about people that go through drastic floods or tornadoes. Um, I think of, of, uh, of folks who a tornado rips through their town. And it takes their home and spins it around. And then they come back to it. And they find that, you know, there's, you know, everything has just kind of been like been put into a blender and just, you know, swirled around. And they pilfer through the ruins of what's left to try to, to, try to make a way forward. How, how, do, you, how do you do that? How, how do you do that spiritually? Now, it's easy if you look and you say, okay, you know, there's a home that's been ruined or flooded. Here's what we need to do. You make a game plan. Um, you, can, you can do that in other areas in your life. You can do that in the area of your finances. You say, we just need another source of income, and then you may look at another job. or You, you know, there's, there's ways that we figure out, try to figure out life and figure out stuff. How do you do it spiritually? How does that happen spiritually? And what are the things that we can implement in our life to do that? And I'm going to look at that recovering restoration from the ruins. Um, restoration from the ruins. And the backdrop of this is we're looking at the life of some kings. We looked at Jehoshaphat last week, and this week we're looking at the youngest king, the child king, named Josiah. Josiah was a child king who 
ascended to the throne at the age of eight. Now, if you were to back off from and get an overview of what's going on in the life of a divided kingdom of Judah and Israel, what you would find would be something like this. Israel, primarily, most of their kings were primarily bad as when it came to spirituality or when it came to the relationship with God or the keeping of the covenant. Judah, on the other hand, had, had, a, a, um, had a sequence of kings that would, they would do evil in the sight of the Lord. God would bring judgment and their hearts would be turned around. They were tender toward God and they would repent and God would restore and bring peace and prosperity to their land and things were good for a while, and then there would be another generation that would come along that didn't want the Lord and didn't abandon Him. And there's this cycle in this Old Testament, in this Old Testament theme, that you look through, and they're returning to God. They're hitting rock bottom. And then they repent. They return to God, and things happen in their life, and God restores it. And then another generation arises that don't know the Lord. And they abandon God. They abandon the ways of their fathers and their ancestors. And God brings judgment again. And they repent and they return. And this is the cycle that you see throughout all the Old Testament. Now it also sounds like cycles of our lives. It sounds like days of our lives. Doesn't it? It sounds like what we see and notice in a nation we can look and see in our own lives. By the way, you can also see this in the life of our nation. And so when we get to chapter, when we get to chapter um, 21 of 2 Kings, we find that that they had been on this, this nation had been on this downward, downward spiral for a long time. This thing didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen, it didn't happen overnight, and, and this was a period of probably 50 to 60 years in the life of a nation that, that they went from peace and prosperity to... It, it happened with Josiah's grandfather... Manasseh. He was the, one of the most evil and wicked kings that was ever to ascend the throne of, of Israel, of Judah rather. Wicked. Wicked. And you say wicked. Well, what does that mean, Greg, when you say wicked? Well, it means that they adapted all the wicked practices of the cultures around them. That they were, had been strictly forbidden to um, accommodate in their lives and that that went and I'll get into some detail about what all it in, included but it was included some pretty vile things um, and we'll look at three in particular but I want you to, to look here as we as we look together I want us to look at at 2nd Kings chapter 21 King Manasseh had a reign of 55 years 55 years of wickedness, 55 years of, of not living for God, 55 years of leading a nation into apostasy, 55 years of pure, vile wickedness. 
was descriptive of Josiah's grandfather. It says in, it says in chapter 21, verse 11, 2 Kings, King Manasseh of Judah had done many detestable things and even more wicked things than the Amorites. These were the people that dwelled in the land prior to them coming there to live. He caused the people of Judah to sin with all the idols. Now, there were three particular avenues of sin that, that you begin to see that, that devastated the land. The first one was there was a complete disregard for human life. So violence covered the land. It was so wicked and so vile that the, many times the, the parents would bring their children and offer them as sacrifices to these pagan gods, literally. And that was a common practice among, among the Amorites. And Manasseh just adopted it. Matter of fact, they would allow these the sacrifices to go on with inside these, these temples. And that was a part of the culture. It was a part of their practice. It was a part of what they did. And they didn't see a thing wrong with it. But it was a total disregard that, that man is created in the image of God and created with purpose and created with value. So, you know, there was, there, was this, there was this vile practice of human sacrifice. Second thing, there was this spiritual bankruptcy. They didn't have God, didn't want God. Matter of fact, the ones that did abandoned God. And, and the, reality, the reality was, is that, was that they served whatever was current in the culture. Whatever, what, whatever, whatever felt good for the moment or what, whatever was embraced by their neighbors, they lost total distinction of who they were as a nation. Now listen very carefully. They lost total distinction of who they were individually. They lost total distinction of who they were in their identity. They lost total distinction of what God called them to do and, and their unique place in role, in role in, among the nations around them. So when we think of abandoning God, we think of, well, that's just my choice, isn't it? No, it affects everybody around you. Well, I, I thought I could sin unto myself. No, you can't. The reality of it is, is that they were living in lostness. And one of the things that they had lost, and this is just amazes me, they had temples, they had even temples that were dedicated to Yahweh or to Jehovah. But somehow they had lost the Bible. They had lost the book. Which tells you where it was in the preeminence in their thinking. So Manasseh was 55 years and pretty well set a national, pretty well set a, a national direction for Judah. They were wicked, they were just like everybody else around them, and they embraced it. There was not only spiritual bankruptcy, the third thing is that there was moral corruption. There was moral corruption on every level. And, and that was seen in, in everything from, 
temple prostitution. In other words, their religion became tied up with, with sexual depravity. So there was human, there was, there was male and female prostitution that was going on and blatant in the temple. There was all kinds of, of sexual um, deviancy that was a part of the temple worship. And that went along with worshiping idols. It's interesting the correlation of the two that you find in Scripture. But it's there. Well, Manasseh dies. His son Ammon comes onto the throne. He is, he is at a very tender age of 22 years old when he becomes king. And look at verse 19 through 22. King Ammon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned with Jerusalem two years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, just as his father Manasseh. He was carrying on the family tradition. He was carrying it on. He followed the example of his father. He worshipped the same idols his father had worshipped. He abandoned, and I, I underline this, he abandoned the Lord. In other words, they knew about God. And they, they made the choice, hey, it's just not for me. This is not the way that we want to do things. They abandoned the Lord. The God, and I don't go over this lightly, the God of his ancestors... The God of his ancestors, he abandoned the Lord and the God of his ancestors and refused. As a matter of fact, in, 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 in verses 19 through 22, he says he refused to follow the Lord's way. He says, listen, I'm not going to have anything of it. So there was, there was this dead set, hardened reality of not following the Lord regardless. And there was, as again, in, in, these, in this time, there was, there was a, a changing in the throne. He was assassinated. And then Josiah, his child, comes to the throne. And that's where the story picks up. So all of a sudden, what Josiah, as an eight-year-old king, inherits is a culture that is filled with moral corruption, spiritual bankruptcy, and a total disregard for human life. Eight-year-old. Now, I'm thinking that this young man, to be this young, had to have had some, had to have had some godly influences around him, maybe, maybe a mother. I'm thinking that there was some influence around him somewhere along the way that just says, you know what, you need to, we need to go back. And, and I'm sure maybe they were going out to, the, to the, see the temple of the Lord, and they looked one day, what's that? Well, that's the temple of the Lord. Nobody goes there anymore. Oh, that was part of our national history. Really? So and why is it not important now? Well, it's just not the end thing to do. It's, it's not just, it's, it's what we, we don't do that now. You know, we're, we're living in a different time, in a different age. And obviously, you know, this more modern time, we, have, we, have, we, we just know that some things are old and outdated and we just don't need them anymore. And maybe a conversation went something like that. I want to know what that was about. It's in our national history. There is a physical temple. So, 
maybe I don't know the conversation, but maybe maybe there was a conversation. Let's let's dig. Let's begin to dig through the ruins of the temple and find out what was in there, and maybe there will be a clue. You think there might just be a clue to the reality of where we're at in the in what is being left to the ruins. What has been left to the ruins? Now, for all of you who like three-point sermons, you are going to be very pleased today. This is going to be real simple. Okay? Repent. They're all starting with R. That's what makes a real good biblical sermon, when they all start with the same letter. Repent, restore, and rededicate. You know, if you need a, a three-point message and you say, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking about lunch, right here's a place that you want to get. Repent, restore, and rededicate. Because that's the process that you begin to see from, from rising from the ruins of spiritual calamity. Now, this, now, I want you to notice this. This thing didn't happen overnight. They were 55, 60 years into a nation that that uh, that that was going down this path there kind of reminds me where we're at today you know you think of you know i was born at the preface of of the 1960s 1961 and but some of you are, were born a lot you know i'm not saying you're older but you are before that time and you all tell me that things were different and how people looked at life the reality of truth the reality of church, the reality of God, the reality of, of, of what we look to. And then all of a sudden in our national history, you look at the sexual revolution of the 1960s and you just kind of fast forward 50 some years and you look at where we're at today. And you say, well, the, is, is there any kind of correlation? Well, maybe, I think so. I do, I, I think so. And then, then, So how do you get back on track? Well, it might be that we get back on track by getting back to some of the basic foundations that is in our, that, that, that is in our national history. Hmm, could be. I think so. Or in the same truth for our lives, could be that if we got off track somewhere, you say, "Where did it? Where did I get off? You know, where did where did things get off off kilter, off track? Where did where did where did what happened? You know, you don't, you know, you, you and you begin to say, okay, where do you go back to? What are the spiritual things that undermine the foundation for your life and for living? Because I want to tell you something: the ruins that you set in spiritually didn't just happen. It just didn't happen one day. You say, oh, I'm spiritually ruined. No. It, it is a small progress of, of an erosion of a spiritual foundation in your life. That's what happens. It, it's, not, it's not something that just comes in and like a tornado and rips your spiritual life apart. No. It, it, is, it is more... It, it is, it is more um, it, it is more like a termite eating away at the, at the very moral and spiritual foundation of our lives. 
Now, I know this is heavy. I realize that. But I just think if we begin to look in the Bible and begin to look at some of these truths, God might teach us something. And God might keep us from ruin in our own lives. He might just keep us from ruining our own lives. Or dealing with heartache. You see, there's some things in life that you don't necessarily need to experience. You think, well, it may present itself as fun and everybody's doing it. It may present itself as but one of those cool things. And, and well, what will it hurt? It's just me. It's my life. You know, we sing them. All of our old rock songs had them. You know, it's my life. <laughs> you know, I live it my way. You know, I mean, the, and, and these are the mantras that we live by. But, I mean, are they really good mantras to live by? When the spiritual foundation of our life, and Jesus said it like this. Jesus said, he says, you've got two guys, you've got two men. One built, man builds his house on a solid foundation and a solid rock, and the other, and the winds come along and it stands, the other one builds it on sand, and the rains come along, the trials of life come, the calamities, the evil comes in life, and all of a sudden this, the foundation is just swept off and swept away. Then Jesus said, narrow is the way, right, to life. Narrow. And he said, there's few. There's only a handful of people that will find it. And will you be part of that handful that goes on the narrow way? That this is, no, I, I, think, I, I've got, I think there's a different way. And, and that's really, and that is ultimately comes down to a choice. So how do, you, how do you do this? The first thing that we begin to see is from this child king. Now I want you to look in 2 Kings chapter 22 now. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years. His mother was Jedidiah and the daughter of, of Abdiah of Bozak. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight and followed the example of his ancestor. Notice this. He, went, he said, i got to go past granddad. You know, sometimes you have to go past your family history. Hear me. Sometimes you have to go past your family history to say, I need to go back to, my, to the ancestor David. He did not turn away from doing what was right. Another version says he did not neither turn right or left. He followed the Lord with his heart. Now this is an eight-year-old. Sometimes it takes an eight-year-old. Sometimes a child, honestly, sometimes a child has more insight than us as adults. Isn't it true? We get blinded by stuff. You know, you learn to live in the gray area and everything becomes gray all of a sudden. Even things that are black and white can become gray. And we begin to think, okay, all of life is about gray. And a, an eight-year-old child sometimes comes along and says, in very simply, no, that's right and that's wrong. Because, you know, oftentimes they don't, they don't have all the rationalization of things that how we rationalize sin sometimes in our own lives. They, they don't have that. They can sometimes just see it the way it is. And maybe that was Josiah's gift. Maybe it was the nudging of his mother as well. I don't know. But God raises up a child king. Now, I think God's saying something. He's raising up a child to be king over a nation that's falling apart. Does that not say something to you? I mean, a child, he's a child, I mean, these are adult responsibilities, right? 
These are, these are I mean, he, is, he has been given adult issues and adult problems. And he's a child king. One of the things that, that he does is in following the Lord, the first thing is that he repented. There was a repentance that took place. Now, if you flip over into 2 Chronicles chapter, chapter 24, I, I want us to look at verses 3 and 4 of, of this. At one point, Joash just decided to repair and restore the temple of the Lord. He summons the priests and the Levites and gave them instructions. Go to all the towns of Judah and collect uh, the required annual offerings so that we can repair the temple of God. Do not delay. But the Levites did not act, act immediately. One of the things that we begin to see that there was a repentance. They're, they're, they went back to the house of God. And, and we begin to see that. Um, we begin to see that. Um, we begin to see that in the life of this nation. He called the priests together. He says, let's go and go find out what's in the house of the Lord. And they began to read from the book of the law. They, found, they went back one day and they found a dusty old book. It would have been the Pentateuch that they had found. It would have been the first five books of Moses. And they dusted it off and... And Josiah had never heard this. I'm just, going to, I'm just going to tell you the story. Josiah had never heard this. Now here's an eight-year-old who'd never heard the story. He hears the story of, of how they were called to be a special nation. An identity. He heard the story of his, the calling of Abraham, that God would bless them... As, and would bless the nations that blessed them and would curse those who cursed them. He began to see and hear the national history about how God brought them through the Exodus. How He delivered them from Pharaoh and from bondage. That they were slaves, but yet they were no longer slaves. And how God established a Passover on that night. To commemorate the death angel pass over, passing over them. And then their miraculous deliverance at the Red Sea. And then the holiness of God. God in giving His commandments. And the reality, the reality of being a holy people. A people that is set apart to God. And then the reality of not embracing the idols of, of, foreign, of foreign peoples. Why? Because you're holy and set apart for the Lord. And one of the unique things about the children of Israel was that they were monotheistic. They, they believed in one God. You know, the, the pagan cultures, they had several for whatever you needed God for. And, and all of a sudden... Josiah begins to hear the story. He begins to hear the reality of what God has done in their lives. And it struck in his heart. And there was a repentance of an eight-year-old. Of, 
of that says, Oh, God, we are far from you. And then he began to inquire from a prophetess, Huldah, what does this mean? Well, it means that you're on a, it means that we're as a nation are on a, on a fast track to God's judgment. And that fast track to judgment is, is, is real. And so, all of a sudden, there's this repentance in his heart. There's this, it, repentance is returning, is turning from what competes for the Lord's, for the affection of God in your heart. In other words, our hearts are so sinful, and the reality of it is true, that we are so sinful that we will naturally set up idols of our, in our own heart for our own making. Now, obviously, we don't have these kind of idols probably sitting in our living room or on our mantle. But, but there, there are idols, and there are cultural idols today that we have that, that become the way in what we live for. And these things compete for our affection for God. Don't kid yourself and think that they don't. They do. They compete for my affection and they compete for your affection for the Lord. And when you recognize what those idols are, when God opens your heart to realize the sin of your own heart and our own lives and we recognize what they are, then God, listen, look at it as like this, uh, look at it like this and saying, thank you God that you love me enough to show me the truth about myself. Because the reality of it is that what God wants from us is more than just an outward obedience and outward raising our hands, and it's good that we can raise our hands. I do mine in worship. He wants more than that. He is wanting our heart that is totally given to Him. He wants it all. Not just part of our life, not just a fraction of our life. He wants all of it. And, and so Josiah begins to say, oh my goodness, we have, we have drifted so far away from God. He recognized the idolatry and he began to turn from it. And how do you know if how do you know if you if there's repentance going on in your life? Because listen, repentance is not just feeling sorry that you got caught. Repentance is not repentance is a godly sorrow. That means this. It means that you recognize that it breaks the heart of God. We're not convinced that He loves us unconditionally. We're not. If we did, we would trust Him. So he all of a sudden, all of a sudden, Josiah, Josiah began to lead, this eight-year-old began to lead a nation into repentance, to turning from God, or turning back to God. Now, let me give you kind of three things under the three point of repentance, okay? Here's the first one. What are you taking pleasure in? Because right there will be, and, and right with pleasure, I would put desire. What do you desire most? If you find yourself completely in, in being drawn to sin, things that you know that are not right, 
things that you know that are displeasing to God, things that you know that, are, that, that can bring ruin to your life, things that you may or may not rationalize. And here's how you know when you're rational. When, you're, when, you're, when you have this mental conversation within yourself and you kind of rationalize it and think that it might be okay, more than likely it's not. That's an inner voice of conscience that God gives you as, as a way of protecting your heart. When you desire God more than sin, you will not sin. When you Let that sink in. In other words, when you find that your greatest joy, your greatest pleasure, your greatest aspiration in your life is not what you think that you want that's going to bring you pleasure, but what, what, when, when, you begin to, when you begin to immerse yourself into your relationship with God and your greatest joy becomes Christ, then all of a sudden, the things that tempt you, to lure you, that bait you to sin have less of a hold. Desire. So how do you know if you repent? It's not like, okay, I'm going to be strong. This is where most of us mess up. This is where the... As you look at this whole nation, you say, man, they had, they had years of this. They did. They had years to attest to the... To the to the, to the reality that they couldn't help themselves. That their heart was desperately wicked. Now that's bad news, isn't it? There's years to attest this, that if they could just kind of pull themselves up by their bootstraps. No, it is a heart issue, and Josiah knew that as an eight-year-old. And he begins to lead them into repentance. They turn from evil and their ways. The second thing is what the first one is what you desire. The second one is what are you praying about? What are you praying about? Think about this. What are you praying about? What is the desire of your heart? We oftentimes pray our desires. And um, you know, I've I've been, I've been some thankful that for God's answer. God sometimes answers no, and that is an answer. I don't like it at the time, but usually it's, it's God's best for me, isn't it? So there is, and then there is a purity of devotion in their thinking and their choices. So those three things that begin to characterize what they, that was the way out for them. Now I'm going to give you two more, and these are going to be a little quicker. Okay? I want, to get, I want to go back. Jonathan Edwards, who was, an, who was a theologian in our, in our age, he said, as Jonathan Edwards observed a long time ago, we act on our strongest motive. If our strongest motive, our deepest desire is to know God, it will generate the discipline we need to pursue this. Because we will want to know God more than anything else. We want to know Him more. If this is our strongest motive, we will find ourselves with multiple alternative and competing foci or focuses. He says, when our strongest motive is to know God, then all of a sudden, Jesus said it this way, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and God will do what? 
Somebody needs to get their phone. <laughs> All right. Uh, it could have been mine too, so don't feel bad about that. And I mean that. Um, what's the focal point of our lives? So the second one is to restore. Now, there's three things that happened in this restoration, and I'm just going to give them to you. You can read, you can read it. They restored, they, they read the word of the Lord, they went to the temple, and they found God's word. So th- there's, this is very simple. Restore Bible reading to your life. They, they restored the temple of God. In other words, they went back to church. Right? And then they restored the altar of God. They went back to praying. <laughs> it's kind of like a what? You would expect to hear that from a pastor, wouldn't you? To return to God means that they, re- they went back to the Word of God. It, w- it, w- it began to be the truth that was spoken into their lives and touched them at the deepest core of who they were. That's why they would love their neighbor. That's why they would want to live for God. They went back to the Word of God. God was speaking into their lives and they were hearing from God. They went back to the, to the house of God. Where, and, and you know this was a big deal, the house of God. Let me tell you what happened at the house of God. When they would come in and, and, and they would worship, the Shekinah glory of God would come and His presence would dwell in that temple. You talk about something when God's glory came and filled the temple, the priests were afraid to walk in to the holy place of holy place. They knew that when they went there, God would be there. And there was glory in that place that no shame of this world and what the shame of, the, of, of what the shame could say would bring enjoyment would compare to the glory that could be revealed in the temple. So they, they began to restore worship and they would celebrate the Passover and all of these things. Josiah began to, to do all the things that they used to do. And then they restored prayer, the altar of God. They got rid of the idols and they began to pray to God and trust God, a God they couldn't see. I mean, idols, you can handle them, you can touch them, and an idol is just that, it's dead and lifeless, but God was real and lively and living. And He offers a living word. So they begin to restore. So they repented, and they, then they restored. And the third thing is they rededicated their life to Christ, they re, or their life to God. They read the covenant. They said, we are far away from God. We are far away from God. Now, see, what Josiah did was he said, now, this is just a personal thing for me. No. He, he brought all the leaders together, and they sat all day, and they listened to the priest read the Word of God. And they realized how far they had fallen. You see, they were worse off than they realized. And it was all spiritual. God sat back and said, Josiah, your reign basically will not, there won't be any judgment. Why? Because he had a heart for God. He had a heart for God. Rededicate our lives to the Lord. 
In chapter 23 of 2 Kings, verses 1 through 3, it says, The king summoned the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the temple of the Lord with all the people of Judah, along with the priests and the prophets and all the people of, uh, from the least to the greatest, everybody. Longest church service ever. Then the king read to them the entire book of the covenant that they had found in the Lord's temple. The king took the place of authority beside the pillar and renewed the covenant of the Lord's presence. He pledged to obey the Lord by keeping all the commandments, laws, decrees with all his heart and soul. And the way he confirmed all the items of the covenant that were written in the scroll and the people pledged themselves to covenant with the Lord's temple. That covenant with the Lord means this. It means they recognized who they were. Their identity as a nation. They, they recognized that they had a covenant with God unlike any other nation, that, that he had blessed them. Now, what amazes me is, can, a, can the temple lose the Bible? Let me ask you, can your lives lose truth of God's word? You know, it, it really kind of concerns me today. Now, I know this has not been a real feel-good message. I know that, and I'm sorry become next week okay this is a part of our lessons that we're that that our classes the ones are going through but I, I want you, you you know you you begin to think you have the Bible in so many different forms you know they didn't have a they didn't have the they didn't have a Bible in their homes you've got a Bible in your home you've got more than one bible two bibles you've got a phone bible a phone bible that's kind of there i always go back to my books i'm just old but you, you know you've got all this but here's one of the things that we don't have today we've got plenty of books and we got plenty of access to truth which may be to our greater condemnation. We have all this truth and all the reality of this, but let me ask you, do you embrace truth? See, that's the real question. The real question is, do you know what it says? Yes, but do you embrace it out of an act of a loving God who wants to covenant relationship with you. Now, I have some great news to this. This message is actually going to get better here in the last two or three minutes. Okay? So you got the three. They're repentance, restoration, and what? Rededicate. Here's, here's the beginning place. If there's sin in your life, confess it. Come to agreement with God. Confess sin. You come into agreement with God about sin in your own life. You confess it before the Lord and you turn from it. It's like, God, I'm sorry and I confess it and come to agreement that this is wrong. The second thing is you begin to, to give yourself as a living sacrifice to God. What does that mean? It means that you say, God, my body is yours. My life is yours. Do not be conformed by the schemes of this world, do not be, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not come into the schemes of this world, 
And, and don't think that, that if you think the way the world thinks that you're going you're gonna to get some sort of big revelation from God. You're not. You conform your mind to the thinking of the truth of God's Word. You allow truth to speak into your life. You rededicate your life to God. And then you begin, to, you begin to restore those things that build that spiritual person up within you that you can prove what is the perfect, acceptable, and the good will of God. Now here's the New Testament application. God shows mercy through a child king. Here it is. Who came to give his people... A new heart. God comes as a child. He comes as a child to give a new heart to restore righteousness in our lives. All of these nations should have recognized, hey, we can't do this with self-help. We need God's help. That was the whole point of it all. And God comes to the rescue in coming to this earth as a child. And then a death on the cross for my sin. The affections of my heart that are apart from God. God comes to deal with my life on a heart level. A heart that is desperately wicked in need of grace, in need of mercy, in need of the reality of His redeeming love. It was displayed and poured out unselfishly on the cross in Jesus and His sacrifice. And then God does the ultimate The ultimate thing that you and I fear the most, and that is death. And he says, okay, I'm resurrecting my son from the dead, the child king. Then the power of his resurrection rose gloriously on that third day. And he says, because I live, Greg Sergeant, you live also. The power, listen, the power and the penalty of sin has been broken because of the cross and the resurrection. Because there was a child king. Amen. Hallelujah. There was a child king that, that comes to listen not only rob the grave, he comes to rob your heart of every, every vile affection. Everything that would draw your life away into ruin and spiritual decline and spiritual decay. You cling to Jesus who went to the garden. You cling to Jesus who went to the cross. You cling to Him. And then you say, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's a good prayer. And that is a prayer that invokes the help of God in our lives. I feel like preaching, but I need to quit. Let's pray. Father, bring resurrection. Some here today, Lord, may be dealing with this, the sense of needing hope. 
we pray that you'd speak hope into our lives. Some here today are in need of repentance. Their hearts have been drawn through so many things. And today I ask that you'd give them grace to confront their own heart. And draw them by your mercy and grace to do what they know they need to do, and that is turn from it and turn to you. For some of us, Lord, it's just, we're not off track, but we just, we're just not on all cylinders. I pray that you would help us today to rededicate our lives to the purposes of God. We thank you for this example of a child king. That was only a foreshadow of the King of kings and the Lord of lords who's to come to set our lives free and to take a heart that has been captivated by the bonds of sin to make it free. Help us to trust. Give us trust. Give us faith. Grant your mercy to do with this message what we need to. In the name of Christ, amen.